The HD Insights Podcast is brought to you by the Huntington Study Group. The Huntington Study Group is a nonprofit research organization dedicated to conducting clinical research in HD and providing critical training on HD to healthcare professionals. Funding for this podcast is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you and sponsorship grants from organizations like Genentech, Teva Pharmaceuticals, Neurocrine Biosciences, Vasinex, and Wave Life Sciences. Hello, and welcome back to the HD Insights podcast for another episode. I'm Kevin Gregory, Director of Education, Communications, and Outreach at the Huntington Study Group. In this episode, we are privileged to sit down and chat with Dr. Joseph Higgins. Dr. Higgins is Vice President of Clinical Development and the Huntington's Disease Program Lead at Unicare. Unicare is doing some exciting research in Huntington's disease. Recently, Unicare announced the start of recruitment for a very exciting new trial for an HD treatment. Dr. Higgins has a really interesting background, and I think you'll enjoy this interview. So sit back, relax, and take a listen. All right, so we're joined here uh, by Dr. Joseph Higgins today. Dr. Higgins is the Vice President of Clinical Development at Unicare for the Huntington's Disease Program. And I had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Higgins in Boston at the HDSA annual convention. And I found the conversation with him was really upbeat, really uplifting, really interesting time in the Huntington's disease world in terms of treatments that are coming down the pipeline and starting to move into clinical trials. And Unicare certainly is no stranger to that right now with their treatment um, coming out called AMT-130. So we wanted to sit down uh, with uh, Dr. Higgins for this episode and, and certainly talk to him about that, but to learn a little bit more about the person, um, his background, his experience, his interests uh, in the field, in neurology. And so, Dr. Higgins, thank you for joining us today on the HD Insights Pod. It's, it's a pleasure to have you on board. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to start out with first, uh, you know, looking at, you know, at your experience, um, you're, you're board certified in, in pediatrics, and, and you've worked a lot in, in child neurology, and now obviously you're doing work in adult neurology and Huntington's, Huntington's disease. Um, tell us a little bit about how you got into the field. What, was, what prompted you to look at a career in neurology? What started you down this path? Yeah, that's a great question, and, and I, you've given me these questions before, so I had a little time to prepare and a lot of time to reflect on how did I get interested in uh, neurology and in the field. And I grew up in a small town in upstate New York uh, called uh, Fishkill. Uh, I lived next door to a family doctor who worked at West Point. And at a very early age, he used to hang out in his office, and um, actually he treated me and my brothers. And how I, that's really how I got interested in medicine. And an interesting fact is that George Huntington actually practiced medicine in Fishkill, New York, the same town I grew up in. Right. So I found that very interesting uh, now that I'm here uh, as VP of the Huntington Disease Program and doing one of the first um, AAV trials in Huntington's disease. So I, I, that's where I got interested in medicine. Um, I graduated from NYU, um, 
School of Medicine and then matched in pediatrics at Harvard Medical School, Boston Children's Hospital, and wanted to do um, neurology in children mainly because of the develop developing brain. And I think children have the best chance of uh, having neurological diseases cured. And as I started to progress in my career, I, I realized that adults are actually developing too. So their brains actually develop until about the age of about 25, but it still continues all throughout their lifetime. Uh, my interest in uh, gene therapy and in uh, molecular uh, biology began um, you know, after I finished my residency. Um, I did a residency in pediatrics, also adult neurology, and then child neurology at Children's National Medical Center in DC, which is part of George Washington uh, University. When I was there, I was introduced to a Dr. Dale McFarland, who was a researcher at NIH in multiple sclerosis, uh, and he got me interested in doing research um, and introduced me to Dr. Roscoe Brady, who I decided to do a three-year fellowship with him in uh, neurogenetics, and that included both gene therapy and enzyme replacement therapy. I think I really first got really interested in neurodegenerative diseases uh, when I was with Roscoe. And when I saw the results of enzyme replacement therapy, I thought, wow, this is incredible. Uh, Gaucher's disease was basically cured in the, in, during that clinical trial. Um, and it was just an amazing thing to watch from a clinical perspective that you can inject something by the vein, in a vein and actually cause shrinkage of both the liver and the spleen. That wasn't necessarily neurological, uh, and we decided to look at Gaucher type 3 and that's when I get involved in gene therapy. Um, gene therapy did not work uh, during the 1990s, and it was kind of put on a hold. But that's where I first um, began. It, that's where my interest began in gene therapy. Also, during that period of time, I was part of the Human Genome Project with Francis Collins as his lead uh, in Bethesda. And there became what they call a gene hunter and found a lot of disease genes uh, for diseases like Parkinson's disease, intellectual disability, and ataxia. Around that time, the Huntington disease gene was discovered in 1993 by Jim Gisela and by a team uh, led by Nancy Wexer and Iris Schultz and, and uh, Ann Young down at Lake Maracaibo in Venezuela. And so that was a really exciting time for, for gene hunting. And the hope uh, from that point onward is that, was that if we found the gene, we'd be able to treat the disease by looking at the molecular mechanisms. And so um, it was just natural that I would, would kind of gravitate to that field and spent a lot of time in academics uh, making transgenic animal models for human diseases uh, and trying to translate those animal models into therapies. Uh, because of my expertise in gene hunting, I uh, helped develop uh, next generation sequencing uh, in, in, uh, at Cornell. And because of successful publications, Quest Diagnostics contacted me and I began running their uh, genomic program and tr uh, converted their Sanger sequencing uh, technology, which is very expensive, to next generation sequencing technology and lowered the cost of diagnostic uh, genetic testing, which I believe would be the first step in, in leading to more gene therapies because you really can't treat gene therapy, treat genetic diseases unless you can actually identify them. Uh, and identify them in the research arena is very different than uh, identify them in the diagnostic arena. So that's kind of it. And from there, um, Unicure uh, and the whole gene therapy uh, field advanced, and Unicure was treating Huntington's disease, and I took a look at the company and was recommended by someone I knew uh, in the field and said, Joe, you ever think about getting back into gene therapy? Um, and I 
took a look at uh, Unicure and decided, okay, time is right, not only from the genetic point of view and the molecular point of view, but also from neurology as a field was um, at a point where neuroimaging was really good, the neurosurgical techniques are uh, more advanced, and I thought it was the right time to start uh, a clinical trial at Huntington's. Excellent. Yeah, that's that's quite a journey. And I, one of the other things that uh, I wanted to ask you about um, when we talked in Boston that, that I found particularly fascinating was you spent a good deal of time at the uh, National Institute for Health, NIH, and you had a particularly interesting story um, about how your tenure there coincided with the, uh, the Gulf War. Do you, you want to yeah. tell the audience about yeah. that? Yeah, so I joined the Public Health Service um, back in 1990. And um, at that point in time, um, you know, the United States Public Health Service had never been activated in time of war, except, I believe, the Civil War. Um, so it was really you were stationed at NIH. Um, you were, in the case of a natural disaster, sometimes they activate you to participate in that. Um, there were quite a number of people in the United States Public Health Service, including uh, a lot of the neurosurgeons. And there, there was a Dr. Ed Oldfield who actually invented the um, uh, technique called convection-enhanced delivery, which we actually be using in, this, in the upcoming clinical trial. So I got to know Ed there, and one of his fellows was Russ Lonzer, who is the, uh, one of the principal investigators in the trial, actually principal neurosurgeon in the, in the trial. Um, so what happened, though, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, they activated only neurologists and neurosurgeons in the United States Public Health Service, and I was one of them uh, getting ready to go overseas. But the, the war was over in 10 days, so we never really got to go. Um, so I was talking to Russ Lonzer, and I was saying to him, um, you know, now, you know, that whole neurosurgical, neurolog neurological group went, almost, went to, almost went to war, but now we're going to war against Huntington's. Absolutely. So it's really interesting from your experience and your background how many, you know, how many tie-ins there are to what you're doing now. So you talked about, you know, growing up in Fishkill, which is where George Huntington uh, practiced. Did, I, did you know that at the time, like when you were spending time um, you no. know, helping out? <laughs> it was just a coincidence. No, I just found out when you asked me, sent me those pre, uh, you know, the pre-interview uh, questions. I started to think about it, and when I looked at um, Fishkill, George Huntington actually came up, uh, and he practiced in Matawan General Hospital, which is still in existence today. Mm -hmm. um, it's now part of a, a Fishkill Correctional Facility, but the hospital itself is still there. So I, I, you know, I never knew that until recently. That's fascinating. And then at the same time, when you're, uh, you know, doing your work as a, a gene hunter, did you, uh, did you actually? ever have any interaction or you ever meet with any of the group that um, helped discover the, the Huntington gene back in, uh, back in Venezuela? Yeah, it was interesting. Nancy Wexler, I met Nancy Wexler in the 1990s with my genetic counselor whose name was Lyndon Nee. And uh, it wasn't until uh, last year that I actually had any contact with Nancy and met her at the uh, Red Third Disease Foundation meeting in Boston. And uh, she recognized me which I found pretty fascinating. We talked about Linda Nee, and she remembered those days back in the 1990s when she was in IH, and we were talking about the ethics of genetic testing at that point in time. Fascinating. Uh, Dr. Higgins, looking back at, at you know, uh, your, your career um, and your path to where you are now, is there, you know, is there a person or a, 
a few individuals that you look at and consider to be your your mentor, your your inspiration, the person that you know you really learn the most from that has kind of helped shape and evolve your approach to uh, your work? Yeah, I think it would have to be Dr. Roscoe Brady from NIH. Um, he was kind of my mentor after I finished my child neurology training um, doing genetics. And he was the type of person that could take a, a disease and then look at the biochemistry and draw the pathway on a board and say, oh, this is what you should be looking at. And if you do that, you may be able to treat that disease. So that's where I began to real, realize the power of research and knowing uh, biochemistry and genetics that there really was a possibility to uh, cure some of these really rare diseases where there was actually no hope for any of these patients. So I'd say Dr. Brady would be the, uh, the person who really steered me uh, in this direction. And what's the, is there one thing in, in your life that, you know, what is the one thing in your life really that you consider, you know, your proudest accomplishment, whether that's personal or professional or, or, or both? You know, I would say, you know, two things. One was related to um, enzyme replacement therapy. I was the fellow who actually injected some of the first patients with enzymes. And to watch those children and adults um, uh, be cured of Gaucher's by enzyme replacement was probably the most gratifying things I've ever seen. And I would, the other thing I would say was just clinical practice, um, epilepsy in particular, when a, a child came in and had seizures and I was able to prescribe an anticonvulsant and then see that child after two years not need the anticonvulsant anymore. Um, that, that's, that was really rewarding. So I think the general practice of child neurology was rewarding. What, was, what really drove me was the fact that there were many children out there with um, diseases that could not be cured, that were, there were no treatments. Uh, and Huntington's was one of the first genetic diseases discovered, and I was almost shocked that we haven't been able to cure that yet. Uh, because you would think by this point in time that um, since 1993 the present, there'd be multiple therapies available. Um, so I think we have a long way to go with gene therapy, but I think there's an acceleration now in, in the field uh, because of better understanding of the molecular mechanisms. Well, that's a great point, and, and that's something that, you know, I, I'd like to, to build on. So from that perspective, like you said, there's, you know, the, the gene was discovered, you know, 25 years ago, and, and there's been treatments, but, you know, no, no cure yet. Give me your personal perspective on how you've, you know, how you've taken in the evolution um, of the HD field and, and the treatments that have come about and, and kind of where you even see it in the next, you know, five years or, or, or 10 years going forward. Yeah. So, I mean, there has been a tremendous amount of, of uh, progress in gene therapy. I remember when we were using retroviruses, which um, didn't work. And then the evolution of AAV, looking at different serotypes and doing recombinant AAV and, and looking at transgene and replication deficient viruses. So all that took a lot of time uh, to develop the right vectors uh, and to understand the molecular mechanisms. And what we're doing now with micro uh, RNAs is just incredible. And with Huntington's disease, um, we do know that it, it starts in the caudate and putamen. So the neuropathology starts there, affects the medium spinal neurons. So I know in animal models that when we inject in those areas, and not only in Huntington's, but with other diseases that start in very specific areas of the brain, we're able to reverse the neuropathology and actually ameliorate the phenotype uh, in these animal models. 
So getting it and delivering it to the right spot is critically important, and understanding the neuropathology is critically important. And so Huntington's disease, um, not only the genetics is better understood, but the neuropathology, and actually the molecular neurobiology is understood. So because it's one of the older genetic disorders, there's a lot of knowledge out there that helped design uh, the, the micro-Huntington approach. And of course, there are other approaches. ASOs are one of them. But it makes mo most sense to me to get the, uh, the treatment to the place where the neuropathology starts. I, I think that makes common sense from a neuropathological point of view. So I think that not only that, but now with better neuroimaging techniques, you can target areas of the brain within 0.1 millimeters. So the delivery is another advancement in the last 30 years that has coincided with uh, betterment in gene therapy, AAV vectors, and also our understanding of those mechanisms. So the, the, the time is right for this type of thing, uh, especially uh, Huntington's disease because of those three different um, fields coming together, neuroimaging, better delivery system, and understanding the molecular neurobiology. We'll return to the interview on the HD Insights podcast in a moment. We hope that you're enjoying this episode. As a nonprofit organization, the Huntington Study Group relies on the generous support from the community and listeners like you to continue bringing you in-depth content on HD, like this podcast series. If you like what you're hearing and are interested in supporting HD Insights through a grant or donation, please contact us through our email address, info at hsglimited.org or by calling toll-free at 1-800-487-7671. We greatly appreciate your support. And now, back to our episode. This past June, a letter went out from Unicare to the HD community, and then, you know, throughout the course of the past, you know, year plus, um, you've been working to you know, get to the point with the FDA and submitting an IND and getting all that approval. And we know that you're in the process of, you know, recruiting for the, the first clinical trial. You know, tell us a little bit more about this particular treatment. We know it's a one-time administered gene therapy, which makes it pretty unique. But, you know, what's really the intent? What's, what's going to happen um, when this treatment is administered and how it's administered? Okay. You know, for, you know for, I just had a thought that, you know, some of these Huntington's disease-specific networks, such as um, EHDN, the Huntington Study Group, uh, ERN, CHDI, uh, they've really been instrumental in really advancing the field and ac actually organizing patients and patient groups so that it's easier to study Huntington's disease from a clinical trial perspective. So recruitment and those, the Enroll HD database and track HD studies, they've all been really uh, really good to have as far as clinical trial design and looking at what patient populations, understanding the genetics, understanding the clinical parameters and clinical endpoints. So Unicure has been studying Huntington's disease now for about five or six years in animal models, uh, particularly the Huntington's disease uh, mouse models, uh, the R62 model, the Q175 uh, mouse model, including the Q175 Delta Neo mouse model, and the humanized 128 uh, mouse model, and showed uh, 
and showed that we sh show improvement by by delivering uh, microhuntington to silence um, uh, the disease in those animal models. Probably more importantly, we used a transgenic pig model to look at the delivery system as well as silencing therapy, and then measuring mutant Huntington, the CSF by lumbar puncture, which mimics what we'll be doing in human beings in the, in the clinical trial. Uh, so by real-time MRI convection-enhanced delivery, we are uh, targeting the cauda imputament and slowly infusing the AMT-130 uh, into these structures over a period of about eight hours. So it is a neurosurgical procedure. The catheter is made out of ceramic, and then it tapers down to the size of the human by, hair by using uh, uh, silica, which is a, a very hardened type of uh, glass. And this has been done since the uh, early 1990s with a variety of different substances, but this is the best, and it's been done, this, this has been used for about 10 years in chemotherapy and other gene therapy trials. But what's amazing when you go into the neurosurgical suite and you see the brain in three dimensions and you see this uh, catheter going in and then you see the infusion um, in the structure, it, it's extremely accurate and you felt the structure so that it transduces the neurons within the cauda imputamen. And then something amazing happens that after you take the catheter out, that transduction delivers the microhuntington uh, to the neuron. And what it then does, the microhuntington travels by extracellular vesicular transport, both up to the cortex and down to the other deep gray matter structures, and sort of transforms a, a lot of the a lot of the brain. Um, we do get 75% lowering of mutant Huntington in the striatum, and 50% in the cortex with the high dose, and low dose is 50% lowering in the striatum and 25% in the cortex. So we do see a lot of um, a lot of lowering. By, uh, by delivery into these structures in, in large animal models, including the, the pig model. We also did it in non-human primates, but non-human primates, I, I think people understand that most of these studies are done in uh, synomalgous monkeys, which have brains the size of, they can fit in a petri dish. So they're not as big as a pig brain and definitely not as big as a human brain. So translating um, delivery from the monkey to humans is very difficult. Uh, it's much easier when you're looking at a, a pig that weighs 200 or so pounds. So the, the clinical trial is really about the delivery of this micro-Huntington by using an AAV5 vector. So AAV5 is an adeno-associated vector. Uh, it is a virus that um, does not replicate, so there's no infection with this virus. The virus acts as a Trojan horse when you deliver it into the brain and it latches onto the surface of the neuron and then injects um, the microhuntington into the cell where the cell's natural machinery then processes the microRNA to turn off uh, both mutant huntington as well as um, a small toxic fragment called the mutant huntington exon 1 fragment. And that exon 1 fragment is now known to be one of the primary reasons um, that uh, patients with high number of repeats have an earlier onset because this toxic X11 fragment is more common when there's a larger repeat. It does. It, it also is in patients with, with a lower number of repeats, but it seems to be uh, at higher levels in those that have higher number of repeats. So the, the therapy is, is treating not only the full-length mutant Huntington protein, but also these this smaller toxic fragment, which is something very unique about uh, this therapy. 
uh, compared to other therapies. Uh, the clinical trial is a double-blind uh, imitation surgery control trial with an escalating dose. Those escalating doses will um, be a cohort with a low dose and a cohort with a high dose. The low dose cohort is, is really targeted to lowering mutant Huntington by 50% uh, in the striatum and 25% in the cortex. And that was the level where we saw uh, a significant improvement in the Huntington disease uh, transgenic animal models. Uh, the higher dose, um, we also saw improvement using the higher dose. So both doses show an improvement in the animal models. We just don't know which one is going to be more effective in the human, and that's why we're doing the trial. The imitation surgery is that we're not injecting anything to the brain, but because of the, the, the placebo effect seen in most movement disorders, including Parkinson's disease, it was thought best because of the invasiveness of the procedure to really have an imitation uh, surgery control arm, so there'd be no doubt if we did see any effect that it would be real. Um, and those patients will be randomized, and there'll be a small indentation made in the skull with an, inc with a, an incision with one stitch. Uh, so that a patient would feel that they've had something done, but they would not have had anything injected into the brain. Uh, the study core period is 18 months, and during those 18 months, we'll be uh, doing a series of tests, including clinical tests, uh, unified hunting disease rating scale. We're doing quanti quantitative motor function, or Q-motor. Uh, we'll be doing MRI imaging, as well as magnetic resonance spectroscopy. Um, we'll be doing uh, CSF and blood uh, biomarkers, including uh, neurofilament and light and mutant Huntington, the CSF, uh, and then patient report outcome measurements. I mentioned magnetic resonance spectroscopy, which is a really important test. Uh, we did show in an animal model uh, of Huntington's disease that when we treated with uh, this drug, AMT-130, that we had a restoration of neuronal function in the brain. And that's a pretty amazing result. Uh, usually, you, you don't see that. So what that suggests is that when we treat patients, or treat mice at least, at an early stage, that we, the neurons are sick and there's a possibility they could be rescued. So that was a really important uh, part of our preclinical data. And we hope that by doing this in patients, we may see the same thing. We went through a lot of pains to, sta uh, to standardize this throughout all sites. Um, and I can tell you a little bit about the, the sites and how many there are and uh, what we plan on doing there, if you'd like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, because uh, I was going to ask you what the, you know, what's the nature of the patient population? Um, you know, are you looking for people, you know, uh, pre-manifest, early HD, um, you know, the, the total size of this initial phase one trial that you're doing? Absolutely. Yeah, so there's a total of 26 patients. Uh, in the trial in total and divided between cohort one and two. Um, there's a randomization scheme because of the, um, uh, the imitation surgery. We plan on having three surgical sites, uh, and these neurosurgeons, um, I mentioned before, a, a friend of mine who are colleagues at NIH is going to be doing the, the study at Ohio State University. Uh, we also have a neurosurgeon at uh, uh, University of California, San Francisco, Dr. Paul Larson, and also at Johns Hopkins, uh, Dr. Stan Anderson. Uh, these uh, neurosurgeons are highly specialized in real-time MRI convection-enhanced delivery. Um, Stan Anderson is going to uh, scrub in with uh, both Paul and Russ the initial, uh, uh, the initial um, um, surgeries because he has not done AAV delivery with these other two neurosurgeons, have done AAV delivery. We also have a neurosurgical planning committee. 
So because of the improved neuroimaging techniques, it's now possible to, to op actually do a virtual operation before the patient has touched it in the cloud. So with Dr. Jan Vesper, who's at Duffeldorf uh, University in, in Germany, he has been inserting deep brain electrodes in the in the caudate, and, and no, I'm sorry, in the brains of patients with uh, Huntington's disease, and he's going to also be part of that team to look at the, the pre-surgical trajectories and pre-surgical planning on these patients because he's most familiar with the Huntington uh, disease neuroanatomy. So they'll be making decisions uh, weeks before uh, they actually go into the operating room by getting a consensus and standardizing the procedure. Um, so there, then there'll also be sites referring patients in uh, these Huntington's disease centers of excellence, which would uh, so far Virginia Commonwealth University uh, is, is one participant, and we plan on having others um, uh, uh, join that, those non-surgical sites to refer patients into those three surgical sites. Uh, we have a total of 26 patients. The first cohort will have six treated and four um, uh, imitation surgery patients, and the next cohort would have 10 treated and uh, six untreated or, or uh, imitation surgery uh, patients. What? The total core study period is 18 months, followed by a total of five years of long-term follow-up. If we do see an effect, uh, we will approach the FDA and ask them if we should do an open-label extension trial. Excellent. Um, Dr. Higgins, what, from your perspective, has been you know the biggest challenge in getting to this point? Has it been you know just strictly the amount of time necessary to, you know, get it to a clinical trial phase? Have there been, you know, uh, you know roadblocks or things that you didn't anticipate? You know, if, if you had to summarize the, your biggest challenge in this, you know, what would it be? I think when I first joined Unicure, we, we got the IND approved within eight months. So that wasn't really a, a big challenge. I don't think the regulatory pathway was a big challenge. Uh, Unicure had done a, a great job in looking at all the different animal models, and the preclinical work was uh, pristine. It was just incredible how much work went into and thought went into the procedure in animals, went into the GLP tox studies, went into the preclinical work looking at silencing. So that was, uh, you know, absolutely state of the art, uh, and more so than I've ever seen in any other clinical trial as far as preclinical work. We got the IND approved in January, and I, I think, it, you know, realistically is that when you're dealing with multiple institutions with a gene therapy trial, I think just the administrative part, the paperwork, is something that uh, I don't think people have a big appreciation for when it comes down to contracts between different institutions and IRBs, uh, and then you have other committees that have to look at the safety. Um, it does take longer than you would expect, and I, I would say that was the, the biggest moment. And, and all, you know, the biggest obstacle. Also, last year, the recombinant DNA committee at NIH disbanded. So now um, the IRBs have that added responsibility. And it could have been a little bit slower because now they're looking at it more closely because they didn't have the government agency as oversight. You've had the chance now to, you know, interact with obviously patients and, you know, helping advise Unicare. You've, you've been to HDSA. What's your perspective or takeaway on the reaction from the HD community uh, about this upcoming trial? Um, I think this is almost a year ago that we had a patient ag advocacy group come here to Unicure, and uh, we, you know, we went over the protocol with them. We asked them, we asked them for advice, 
which is really important to ask patients for advice on a clinical trial. That's a really, really good insight. And I think when I left that meeting to see the enthusiasm and just the bravery of these patients, because most of the patients um, that, are, that came, they had Huntington's, but they represented families that, that had between two and 10 people in their family with the disease. So they, they were advocates not only for themselves, but their entire family and the whole community. And, and I found that to be very touching. I mean, as a physician, I've seen patients with Huntington's in isolation that were accompanied by maybe one family member, but I've never seen that many patients together in one group working together. And, and I would say when I, when I gave the, the talk to the advocacy group, I used the analogy of um, being astronauts. Um, myself, remembering the first man walking on the moon, thought like these people have to be really brave to get this uh, gene therapy done. It is the first in human study uh, using AAV and Huntington's disease, but it's actually one of the first gene therapy trials using micro-Huntington and actually using this technique of convection-enhanced delivery with direct uh, delivery to the brain. So the tremendous amount of bravery and courage really, really touched me, which is something that you don't see uh, in a regular clinic, uh, but in the, the research community, you really do see that this uh, whole community is a very brave and resilient group. It, it really is. It's, it's amazing to see, and it's amazing to interact with, with these you know, uh, strong and, and brave patients. Dr. Higgins, I want to shift gears just a little bit, but kind of... Um, Dovetailing off the, the discussion of the AMT-130 and the trial, like you said, this is, you know, one of the, this is going to be a first uh, for this particular community. So, uh, you know, I'm curious, as I, I'm sure a lot of listen, listeners are, how do you think, you know, assuming everything goes great, um, you know, you have approval for the treatment, how do you see clinical Huntington's disease uh, practices evolving in the in the years or the period after um, a successful trial of this kind? Yeah, you had mentioned before, uh, you know, it's been a quarter of a century since the discovery of the gene, right? And then George Huntington described the disease uh, about a century, more than a century ago. So that's a long time. Um, you would hope from the animal model, animal data that we have in this trial, and also looking at the other therapies available in their animal data, that this type of therapy, whether it be ASO or gene therapy, would have an impact upon the, the clinical aspects of the disease. And that, that's, that's the main uh, reason to do a clinical trial, is really to look at the clinical um, effects. Not so much the biochemical or biomarker effects, which is very encouraging and lowering mutant Huntington, the CSF, is, is, is great, but it's really to have that clinical effect, to reverse the chorea, to improve the life, to stop the progression of the disease, or even better, to just halt the progression of the disease. Is that a realistic goal? Well, everyone would hope for that, um, but I think when you really sit down and think about it, um, it's probably going to be multimodality treatments. The one thing that's good about gene therapy is that you, you do it once and then you're done, right? It, it, it lasts for a very, very long time. We know there's expression in, in other uh, genetic diseases for at least up to five to eight years. So we know this is a long-term therapy. Is that going to be enough is the big question. Um, is it a combination therapy where you may have a little bit of crea, you may need to have some uh, symptomatic treatment for that, um, you may need another therapy to stop the cortical involvement, 
uh, another therapy to stop the, uh, the motor progression. That would be a more realistic view, but of course we all hope that, um, that with this therapy that we would have a significant impact on the progression. Um, and also, um, just looking at you know other things going on with Huntington's uh, epigenetic factors, um, th there's a lot going on there. Um, and like, what other cellular are you getting in all the cellular compartments? You're getting into the cyto at least our therapy, the cytoplasm and nucleus. Is there any mitochondrial uh, issues? We really don't know that much about that. So even though Huntington's a monogenic disease with a CAG trinucleotide repeat. Uh, things usually are more complex than, than what they first appear. So I think in the future you're going to see a lot of great research going on, understanding the, the molecular pathophysiology of Huntington's, and there'll be multiple uh, shots on goal to help cure the disease. I'd also like to ask you from your experience, because you've been on the front lines in neurology uh, when it comes to quality of care. and in terms of the HD population, you know, what are your thoughts on over the, over the years, you know, where there have been hits or where there have been misses um, with quality of care that, that the, the community, the industry, the field should really be focused on going forward? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's genetic diseases in general, including Huntington's, is that it's usually a multidisciplinary approach. So, you know, from, you know, input from like an expert physician that's a Huntington expert, uh, you know, rehab specialists, nurses, psychologists, genetic counselors, you got social workers, um, psychiatrists. So, you know, the coordination of that care is daunting. And I, I guess there's no really good model. And from my experience, the only time I've ever seen it work was at Boston Children's, where a patient would come to clinic and all the specialists would go to that, one, to that one room. So instead of the patient going to all these different specialists, all the specialists would come to them. And I think that that made a lot of sense to me and I've never seen it done in any other place except for Boston Children's. And then I learned later on that was because of insurance reimbursement, that you need to have separate visits on separate days for the doctors to get paid, which, was, which to me was mind boggling. But I, I think when you look at spinal muscular atrophy, right, that's a disease in childhood where there's been tremendous amount of um, advancement in, in therapies, both ASO and now gene therapy. Uh, the gene therapy that was um, uh, this, you know, the clinical trial run by Invex, there's some amazing results there where those children which are, who were all dead at the age of two are now running around and riding bicycles. And so that's the hope that gene therapy could bring to hunting diseases like Huntington's disease, is that um, you would alleviate the need for a lot of these, uh, these specialists and doctors. But I think for the time being, the gaps in quality of care currently is really that multidisciplinary uh, uh, care, which is lacking not only Huntington's, but I think in a lot of other diseases. Absolutely. Um, well, Dr. Higgins, before we go, I just want to um, you know, ask you uh, one other question, and it you know, you touched on it, you know, uh, various experiences working with children, but is there one particular moment or one particular event that really has, has been the inspiration for you? It's, uh, you know, the one example that you always cite when, when people ask you, what do you remember most about working in this field? Yeah, I would have to say um, when I um, 
injected uh, this little girl with um, enzymes, and she had a very she had, and I still have a slide of her at home, a, an abdomen that protruded out. You know, I would say at least her abdominal girth is at least 40 to 50 inches, and she was only six, and she was anemic and pale, and with thin thin legs, uh, and when I saw her back a month later, and I saw that her cheeks were rosier and that her abdominal girth had decreased, and then when I get the MRI back, I showed that her liver and spleen were shrinking. That was one of the most amazing moments uh, uh, in my career. Um, besides that, you know, seeing patients, you know, many many patients over the years where seizures are, are were cured. When you cure somebody or you take a patient from a state of um, you know, severe disease and you can normalize their life, uh, to me, that's the, the, the best feeling in the world. That, that's amazing. That's a, that's a great story, and I, I appreciate you sharing it. And, and I appreciate your time speaking with us today. Um, you know, I, I'm sure our listeners will come away with a lot of great insights, both on Huntington's disease uh, the work that Unicure is doing with the AMT 130, but most of all, I, I hope people get to to know you know uh, the Dr. Higgins that I've had a chance to speak with um, a, a couple times now, and just really uh, come away with the same impression that um, you know you're one of the positive examples in this field. And again, I, I thank you for joining us on this episode. Yeah, thank you, Kevin, for your time. I appreciate it. Once again, that was our interview with Dr. Joseph Higgins from Unicure. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and ask that you please continue to support us by downloading future episodes. You can subscribe. Um, we ask that you please rate and review, provide your feedback or suggestions for future topics that we'd like to try and bring you. Our hope is with this podcast to bring you more in-depth insight into the people behind the research taking place in Huntington's disease. And again, look for future episodes coming soon. Thank you again for joining us. I'm Kevin Gregory with the Huntington Study Group. Thank you again. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the HD Insights Podcast. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to make sure you automatically get the latest episodes to your device. Please rate and review this podcast with your feedback so we can continue providing the best possible content. If you are interested in providing financial support for the work needed to produce this content, you can do so by becoming an ongoing sponsor or through a tax-deductible donation. To do so, please email us at info at hsglimited.org. That's I-N-F-O at hsglimited.org or by calling our toll-free number at 1-800-487-7671. Thank you for joining us on the HD Insights Podcast from the Huntington Study Group.